Hello? Hello? Yes? Somebody was helping me and cut me off. I hate that. They put me on hold. I hate to be on hold. Okay, sir. Well, sometimes you have to be put on hold if you want to uh, be transferred to other people. Who is it you were speaking with? I don't know. This is How to Break Money, and I'm Eric Allen. How to Break Money is the opposite of how to get rich quick. And it's not a how-to per se. I'm not giving you instructions. I'm giving you eight stories, and they're all true, and they're spread out over four episodes, and together, hopefully, these stories will reveal to you how to break money. And any authority I have to tell such a tale rests on what I learned when I worked for Russ Dalby. He was an infomercial charlatan in the early aughts, and he promised to teach people how to get rich in real estate without using any of their own money. His infomercial was called Winning in the Cash Flow Business. This is Eric. Hi, my name is Richard. I have your, your course. Okay. Um, I like to know, how do you become a millionaire? A what? Millionaire. Uh, I don't know what a man. What were you saying? I don't understand the word. A millionaire and no business. Wait, could you spell it? Uh, a millionaire. Could you spell that? Uh, I'm hearing manure. I don't know what manure is. No, millionaire. How do you become a millionaire? Yeah. Give me a break, buddy. And in the five years that I worked for Russ, he pulled $330 million out of his company. But the man who taught Russ how to make money at that scale, Don LaPree, that man was broke. When he killed himself while in federal custody, awaiting trial for fraud. So... It's complicated. It's dangerous. Money's dangerous, like fire. Fire can cook your dinner or it can burn you alive. It depends on how it's used. Sorry, I just wanted to get instructions on how to send this package that I got back. The winning in the cash flow business? Excuse me? Is the winning in the cash flow business? Yeah. Okay. This is too good to be true. Too good to be true? Yeah. Okay. So good to be true that it probably isn't. <laughs> And I don't mean breaking money in general. I don't know anything about international financial markets. I mean the American dollar bill. I'm talking about cash. That cash money magic. And cash is magic. And we're all under its spell. How to break money is how to break that spell. But you have to first understand how it gets its magic. Welcome to episode one, Manhattan Wampum. This episode has two stories, and they both expose the magic of the dollar bill. The second story teaches you how to make cash out of anything, and I don't mean counterfeits, I mean real cash. The first story is as close as I ever got to getting rich quick. But to tell that story, we have to go back to 1985. I went to Julius West Middle School in Rockville, Maryland. The legend was that the place was cursed because it was built on a Native American burial ground. I don't know why we all thought that, but it was a cursed place for me. I used to get fucked with all the time. 
I was a tall, skinny kid who didn't fight back, and it wasn't hard to make me cry, so I was a bully magnet at a cursed school. But in the last half of eighth grade, I got a reprieve. I started a business, and it changed how kids treated me. It all began with a $5 bill I got from my aunt for Easter. This was early April, 1985. I got on my yellow Schwinn 10-speed, rode it to Giant, and spent the whole five bucks on candy. I didn't need a single piece. The next morning, I brought it all to school and sold it for twice what I paid for it. I sold out before lunch. 50 cents for a pack of bubble yum, 25 cents for each blow pop, and after school I rode my bike back to Giant for the resupply and I bought $5 more of candy and I kept $5 profit and after that first week I had $25 and I tried to buy the candy with all the change and keep the bills so by the end of the first week I had a pile of $24 bills and four quarters. I lined the bills up across my bedspread and I counted them again. I knew how much was there. I just wanted to see them. There are variations in age, some brown bag stiff, some silk slick, and all the bills marked with different serial numbers, and the different Federal Reserve cities, Atlanta, San Francisco, Chicago. I took that first week's profit, that wad of $24 bills, I put it in my front pocket, got on my 10-speed, and I headed over to Penguin Feather Records. Whatever tape I wanted, I was going to buy. After many long minutes, I chose Molly Crew's album, Too Fast for Love. I paid $6.99 plus tax, and after that, pedaled across the street to 7-Eleven, and I paid $0.25 cents extra for my nachos to have jalapenos. I already had Molly Crew's breakout second album, Shout at the Devil, so I was really excited to get this first album reissued again after Shout became such a huge hit. So I'm sitting on the curb, unwrapping the cellophane, opening the case, getting greeted by that plastic petroleum perfume of new tape. I poured over the track listing while trying to avoid dripping nacho cheese on my new tape. And to this day, I've never felt wealthier. I've had more money, bought more expensive things, but never with that same feeling of, of unwrapping, uh, of obtaining, of, of having, but uh, having by earning. Every Friday for weeks, I'd ride my 10-speed to Penguin Feather Records with my pocket full of dollar bills, and I'd buy a tape, or two tapes, or three tapes, and I could just try a band on a whim, like, Armored Saint, or what does Venom sound like? And I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want them to tell me no. And they certainly never noticed my growing collection of heavy metal tapes. Everybody at school knew I had candy. Kids I didn't know came up to me to buy. And I, I had three best customers. Every day, these three boys would find me in the morning, spend their lunch money dollar with me, and eat candy for lunch. Nobody fucked with me. And I kept selling out almost every day. And this went on until June 
around the time Mr. Jenkins called my parents. He was the vice principal, and I fucking hated him. He was a bully in a powder blue polyester suit and a Captain Kangaroo haircut. He saw me sell candy to some kid in the hallway, and he called my mom to tell her that I was selling drugs at school. I finally had to explain to my parents what was actually happening, and my dad thought it was hilarious, especially because Mr. Jenkins not only thought it was drugs, but he didn't even investigate. My mom called the school and told him to leave me alone. But Mr. Jenkins wasn't the problem. Other kids started selling candy, different candy, cheaper candy, and flooded the market. I lost my best customers, and one day I didn't even break even. School was almost over for the summer, so I stopped. <sighs> no more new tapes. No more new tape feeling. My 8th grade social studies teacher told us that Manhattan Island was purchased from the Native Americans for $24 worth of glass beads and trinkets. That dollar amount, of course, the same amount as my first bubblegum windfall. I must have heard that story before about the sale of Manhattan Island. It was in books and cartoons, but... The visceral feeling of the teacher using that exact amount stayed with me. It wasn't even part of a lesson. I forget the tangent he was on, but I remember he then talked about how French people didn't eat the middle of their baguettes. According to him, it was because after they bought their loaf of bread, they tucked it under their arm and rode their bike home with it, and since, according to him, French people never bathed, the part of the bread tucked under the arm smelled like B.O. and was inedible, and I, I don't know why he hated French people so much, but I remember thinking, he's full of shit. Then after finishing his rant, he sat there and called on kids to yell out random numbers they used to fill out his lottery ticket. A real fucking scholar. Never mind that it was the Dutch, not the English, who would have made that supposed deal for Manhattan Island, and never mind that it was never specified who the deal was made with. Was it the Lenape? This, this was supposed to have happened in 1626, but for about 200 years after the supposed deal, no one mentions that amount in their histories of the colonies and their first-person accounts. No one started talking about that amount until a cache of Dutch documents from the 17th century was unearthed and translated into English in the 19th century. In that cache, there was a letter from Peter Schagen, a stockholder in the Dutch West India Company. The letter is addressed to his bosses and describes the arrival of a ship into the port of Amsterdam on November 5th, 1626. And the English translation of the relevant part of the letter says, Yesterday arrived here the ship the Arms of Amsterdam, which sailed from New Netherland on the 23rd September. 
They report the people are in good heart and live in peace there. The women also have borne some children there. They've purchased the island Manhattas from the Indians for the value of 60 guilders. It is 11,000 morgans in size. That $24 figure came from a currency calculation published in 1846 by E.B. O'Callaghan in his History of New Netherland or New York under the Dutch. O'Callaghan wrote, the island of Manhattans, estimated then to contain 22,000 acres of land, was therefore purchased from the Indians, who received for that splendid tract the trifling sum of 60 guilders, or $24. After he published that $24 amount in 1846, it gets repeated as fact in history books thereafter, you know, regardless of its accuracy. And it was some decades after O'Callaghan that another history book in New York City reported that the exchange for the island was $24 worth of beads and trinkets. In 1877, Martha Lamb published History of the City of New York, and she wrote this. The rocky point of Manhattan Island, near what is now known as the Batter, was on the 6th of May, 1626, the scene of one of the most interesting business transactions which has ever occurred in the world's history. It was the purchase of the site of the city of New York. The West India Company had instructed Peter Minuet to treat with the Indians for their hunting grounds before he took any steps towards the erection of buildings. He accordingly made a somewhat superficial survey of the island, which had been designated as the field for pioneer operations, and estimated its area at about 22,000 acres. He then called together some of the principal Indian chiefs and offered beads, buttons, and other trinkets in exchange for their real estate. They accepted the terms with unfeigned delight and the bargain was closed at once. The value of the baubles, which secured the title to the whole of Manhattan Island, was about 60 guilders, equal in our currency to $24. There are no known first-person accounts that uh, place the meeting near the battery. There, there's no known accounts that the meeting took place at all. There's just the seed of Peter Shagin's letter growing into a story that everyone was taught and believed. But, you know, I think Martha Lamb was correct to assume that there was no actual guilders or dollars exchanged. There was no cash uh, back then, and coins of any kind were very scarce. So... She projected, but again, without source material, the idea of an exchange of glass beads and buttons and baubles for ownership of an island that was never shared back. And after the Dutch were forced to flee the English, the English kept the island for themselves. It was never bought for beads, trinkets, and buttons. It was 
occupied merely by sufferance until around 1626, when it seems to have been occupied the way a flood occupies a downstream town. Back then, when the constellation of Algonquin alliances and Iroquois confederacies flourished along the eastern seaboard of North America, you could make a deal with a handful of beads, but they would have been fashioned into a belt that programmed the beads into a woven message. The English called the beads wampum, and the woven messages wampum belts. Most belts have been lost at time, but some belts are still captured and held in American archives. There's a well-documented belt referred to as a pen wampum belt in the collection of the National Museum of the American Indian, catalog number 5 slash 3150. The materials used are listed as whelk shell beads, white wampum, quahog clamshell beads, purple wampum, with babbage and cordage. This loom beadwork belt is about 6 inches high and 42 inches long and is believed to have been created in Pennsylvania circa 1680. The design of the belt shows four purple outlines of plus-shaped crosses on a field of white beads. This is a good belt to examine because of the photographic record. Zooming in on one of the photos, I count a height of 18 beads and a width of 154 beads, so like almost 2,800 beads to make this. Another way to think of the belt is as a screen and the number of beads is resolution. Like a high-definition television means its screen resolution is 1,920 pixels long and 1,080 pixels high. So this belt's resolution is 154 pixels by 18. You know, think of the beads like pixels. The dark and light beads make possible the binary code, like an 8-bit weave. Blocky and abstract symbols and patterns can be programmed into the weave and can communicate an infinite variety of things, like alliances and reparations. The English word wampum was probably sanded down from the Narragansett word wampum peak. Or the Massachusetts word wampum beak, meaning white beads on string. The Dutch used the Algonquin word swan. One of the definitions of swan has been written as it is scattered all over the place. They they were money you could fabricate. Like cash, the paper it's made from isn't what makes it valuable. The beads were made from Quahog clamshells and whelk shells mostly. A clamshell discarded after the meat was eaten could be fashioned into a bead by using the thickest part of the shell, sanding down a piece of the shell into quarter-inch beads that were drilled and strung on babbage, fiber, or sinew. But the true significance of these belts to the constellation of Algonquin alliances and Iroquois confederacies of the 17th century is beyond my understanding. And 
It's not my right to tell that story. It's not my story to tell. You can ask them yourself. Their descendants are still making these belts and still searching for the belts lost to plunder. I'm just telling you what I know of wampum for the rest of this to make sense. This is about how the Dutch and the English hacked an existing open source communication and turned the individual beads into a currency. In the early colonies, there weren't banks, there was no paper currency, and coins were scarce. And this is a simplified view, but the early Dutch colony formed a circle of trade around beaver pelts, wampum beads, and goods from Europe. Because the beads were valuable across the region, they could be traded between groups. They were portable and stable. So if a Dutch trader could trade some axes, duffel, and kettles for a fathom of beads, and then he could take those beads inland, upriver, where they were scarcer, and trade the beads for beaver pelts. Pulling beaver pelts out of the forest and shipping them to Europe was the main line of profit for the early Dutch settlements, and trading for and with wampum beads was a key part of that exchange. The Dutch had no intention of using them for their original purpose. They were converted to something that could hold value across the region. It required a pre-existing base of people who already believed in their value. And in this environment, the hive of a Dutch settlement inside Fort Amsterdam on the tip of Manhattan Island became a global port, a crossroads. And so different kinds of people needed a way to buy things from each other for living, like beer and bread. So individual beads were accepted as currency, like five beads equals one stiver. And from the safety of Fort Amsterdam, the director and council of New Netherland passed an ordinance in 1641 because by that time, there was a lot of bad wampum going around. And the ordinance states, whereas very bad wampum is at present circulated here and payment is made in nothing but rough, unpolished stuff, which is brought hither from places where it is 50% cheaper than it is paid out here. And the good polished wampum, commonly called Manhattan wampum, is wholly put out of sight and exported, which tends to the express ruin and destruction of this country. And in order to provide in time, we do therefore, for the public good, interdict and forbid all persons of what state, quality, or condition soever they may be to receive in payment or pay out any unpolished wampum during the next month of May, except at five for one stiver, and that's strong. Then, after that, six beads for one stiver. The well-polished wampum shall remain at the price as before, to wit, four for one stiver, provided it be strong. So that gives a pretty good glimpse into how important wampum beads were to the growing colony. And they were vital for the functioning of New Amsterdam, of course, eventually becoming New York City, because the beads could act as cash between person to person, grocer to customer, barkeep to drinker, 
the bearer of the bead could expect the same exchange rate as everyone else. And the beads, like blank paper, are nearly worthless until the labor is poured into it. Here's another ordinance from the Director and Council of New Netherland for the better regulation of the currency. This was passed on the 30th of May, 1650. Whereas we have by experience and for a long time seen the decline and daily depreciation of the loose wampum among which are circulating many with holes have finished. Also some of stone, bone, glass, horn, yea, even of wood and broken beads. Together with the manifold complaints of the inhabitants that they cannot go to market with such wampum, nor obtain any commodities, not even a small loaf of white bread or a pot of beer from the traders, bakers, or tapsters for loose wampum. Wherein, wishing to provide according to the best knowledge for this time, we have for the promotion of trade and the general good of the people resolved and concluded that from henceforth no more loose wampum shall be current or good pay unless it be strung on a cord, as has been the common custom heretofore. The whole system of communication was made possible by its binary nature. But that also affected their value. The two colors of beads, the purple of the quahog and the white of the whelk, were not equal in value. Fashioning a bead from the dark purple flesh of the quahog shell was harder to do, harder to find, and the value was affected when they were turned into currency. The, the dark beads were worth more than the white beads, like nickels to dime. This last ordinance was passed on the 3rd of January, 1657, and its stated purpose was regulating the currency. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's the last part that I want to read you verbatim. It's the key to unlocking my point. You see, towards the end of Dutch control of Manhattan Island, like less than a decade before the English claim it ever after, the price of beaver pelts were fluctuating wildly and causing the exchange rate of wampum beads to fluctuate and fall as well. So it created an unstable rate of exchange that especially hurt people who were in cash-only businesses, like the grocers, the bakers, the tapsters, and the mechanics. So the ordinance states... The Director General and Council aforesaid, wishing therefore to provide herein as much as lies in their power, have, for the good and advantage of their inhabitants, after diverse serious consideration, propositions and debates held at various times, not been able to discover any better expedient than to declare wampum a commodity in the matter of commerce and wholesale trade, to wit, only among those who import it from abroad or trade it in this province with Indians for furs, but 
inasmuch as for one of silver and gold coin or other pay, wampum must in small quantities serve as currency between man and man, buyer and seller. The Director General and Council aforesaid have determined, resolved, and ordained, as they do hereby resolve and ordain to rate wampum as far as possible to cause it to be rated at the value of beaver, and beaver still being reckoned until further order and advice from Patria at eight guilders and no higher. They needed wampum both to continue to be a commodity in direct trade with Native Americans supplying beaver pelts and for wampum to act as cash because people needed to buy beer and bread on the island of Manhattan. So they tried to stabilize the price of beaver pelts and peg wampum to that rate to keep wampum circulating. Bread you can eat, beer you can drink, beaver pelts keep you covered. It doesn't matter if you believe it. You'll still be full and drunk and warm. But beads are just shell bits transformed through belief into something of value. You can make cash out of anything. Even clamshells. Even paper. And when we can't pass a dollar bill or a string of beads into the palm hand of anyone we want, then we'll lose that magic. In a cashless society, we could lose our individual power to decide who and how and when we conjure that magic. Okay. <laughs> End of history lecture. The next episode starts about a month after my bubblegum profits dried up. And I learned a very important lesson while shoplifting for the first time. You've been listening to How to Break Money, and I'm Eric Allen. For all episodes and more information, visit howtobreakmoney.com. To contact me directly, write a message and send it to howtobreakmoney at gmail.com. And if you listen this far, please rate the episode on whatever app you use or share it with a friend.